Welcome to uh, the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Stuart Haynes, and I serve as one of the scientific editors for Pharmacotherapy, and I'm going to be hosting today's podcast. Joining joining us today is uh, Dr. Jennifer Trujillo and Dr. Wesley Nuffer. They're authors of a review article, which appeared in the April 2017 issue of Pharmacotherapy. Uh, The title of their article is is impact of sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors on non-glycemic outcomes in patients with type 2 diabetes. Uh, Dr. Trujillo is an associate professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of uh, Colorado, Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences in Aurora, Colorado. She's a board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist and advanced diabetes management and uh, certified as a diabetes educator. And she currently practices at the University of Colorado Center for Adult Diabetes Care and Research. And the center's multidisciplinary team provides diabetes management education to patients with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And Dr. Nuffer is an associate professor also at the University of Colorado Skaggs School of Pharmacy. He is the Assistant Director of Experiential Programs, where he works to place students in various pharmacy practice settings across their curriculum. And Dr. Nuffer's expertise is in diabetes, obesity, and immunizations, and his clinical practice is in the endocrinology department at the University of Colorado Hospital. And apparently, in his spare time, he enjoys the great outdoors as well as martial arts. So, so Jen West. Thanks for joining me today for the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you. So, uh, Jen, I guess we'll start with you. For our readers and listeners who may not be familiar with the sodium glucose co-transporter inhibitors, or commonly called the SGLT2 inhibitors, can you give us a brief synopsis of what this class is, how they work, how powerful they are in terms of glucose lowering, and what agents are currently available in North America? Um, Sure. The SGLT2 inhibitors are really our newest class of medications to treat type 2 diabetes. They are oral agents. Um, They target the kidney. Remember that in healthy individuals, almost 100% of glucose filtered by the kidney gets reabsorbed with really negligible amounts excreted in the urine. The SGLT2 inhibitors reduce that reabsorption of glucose in the proximal tubule which then promotes urinary glucose excretion, resulting in lower blood glucose levels. So in general, they seem to lower A1C by about half to 1%. And currently we have three that are available in the U.S. We have canagliflozin, which is Invokana. We have dapagliflozin, which is Farsiga, and epagliflozin, which is Jardians. So, Wes, in your manuscript, you report about the non-glycemic benefits that have been observed with the SGLT2 inhibitors uh, in clinical trials. And the two most prominent benefits that you talk about in the article are weight and blood pressure. We'll talk about cardiovascular disease in a moment. But certainly two of the benefits that have been observed is, is weight and blood pressure changes. So do the STLT2 inhibitors produce what I would call a clinically meaningful reduction in weight and blood pressure? Is the the reductions we see really important? And do all of these agents in this class produce the same improvements, or are there some differences between the agents? 
That's a good question, Stuart. And uh, first, I would uh, lead with the fact that we don't have head-to-head -head data, and we would love to have those data, but uh, currently that's not available. Um, as a class, we do see these benefits in, across all of the agents. There is a little bit of variance between them based on the different studies, but again, they're slightly different populations, so it's difficult to really definitively say that one agent outperforms the other. Uh, in general, we're seeing about a 5 millimeter of mercury drop in, in systolic and diastolic blood pressure um, pretty much across the agents. Uh, with weight, it does seem like, at least in the uh, trials that we have right now, that canagliflozin has a little bit more um, a stronger weight effect. Um, when you talk about clinically significant, it really depends on how you define that. Uh, I, none of these agents are approved for either blood pressure or weight management uh, outside of diabetes, but certainly when we start looking at our diabetes population, these are excellent add-on benefits that we can have. And, and yes, we would consider, you know, with the weight loss, we're looking at about five pounds or about 2.5 to 2.9 percent. So when you look at the obesity trials, they're really shooting for about a 5% weight loss, so we're not quite, quite reaching that cut point, but certainly as an added benefit to the diabetes control, the glucose control, having a, about a 2.5% weight loss and a 5 millimeter mercury drop in blood pressure across these agents is, uh, is pretty, pretty good add-on benefit. Um, the class effect is something that continues to be something we're looking at and, and uh, trying, to, trying to tease out all three of the agents that Jen mentioned uh, currently available in, in North America are, uh, have shown some effects in these parameters, but again, they're slightly different across, across the trials. So Jen, as you know, cardiovascular disease is the most common cause of death in patients with diabetes. And, of course, we want to make sure that we're adequately treating blood pressure and using statins and aspirin therapy in almost all patients with diabetes. However, not all medications that are used to lower blood glucose have had a positive effect on cardiovascular outcomes. What about the SGLT2 inhibitors? Are they helpful, are they harmful, or are they neutral? Well, you know, what we know today is that at least one of the SGLT2 inhibitors appears to be helpful in regards to cardiovascular outcomes. So as we know, the FDA requires cardiovascular outcome studies to be performed now with all new diabetes medications really to ensure cardiovascular safety. And with these three agents, only one of the agents has published data so far regarding this um, cardiovascular safety. That was the EMPA-REG outcome study, and it was published in um, September of 2015 and it evaluated the cardiovascular safety of empagliflozin versus placebo, and it was in patients with type 2 diabetes at high risk of cardiovascular events. And the study found that not only was empagliflozin safe from a cardiovascular perspective, um, but it actually decreased cardiovascular mortality by 38%, that's relative risk reduction, it reduced all-cause mortality by 32%, and it reduced heart failure hospitalizations by 35%. Again, in this patient population that had type 2 diabetes and very high cardiovascular risk. So one major question we have is whether this cardiovascular benefit is a class effect or if it's really specific to empagliflozin. And we just don't know the answer to that yet. The um, cardiovascular outcome trial for canagliflozin, which is called CANVAS, uh, has been completed, and we expect to see those results in the summer at the American Diabetes Association meeting. 
the cardiovascular outcome trial for dapagliflozin, which is the declare Timmy um, 58 study, is not completed yet. It's expected to be reported out in 2019. Well, that the data so far that we have, in this, at least with empagliflozin, does sound compelling, but um, there are some adverse effects that I think we need to talk about. What are the most common adverse effects? Can clinicians and patients do anything to reduce the risk of those adverse effects? And what should a clinician or a patient do if they actually occur? Well, Stuart, really the two major things that we see with this class of drugs um, and the two counseling points that I, I usually hammer home with patients is, is, number one, you do see some of these mycotic infections. So you see these, these fungal or yeast infections both in women and, and generally in men who are uncircumcised. And, and that can be a problem if, if you have a patient who's a woman who's sort of prone to getting these infections, then, uh, then she probably will get one. Um, the good news is, is that generally they're self-limiting, um, they're self-treated over the counter, and the statistics are about one in five recur where it becomes a major problem and we, we can't use the medication because they keep coming back. But uh, the other proportion, generally after it's treated once, um, that they do, they do not recur at the same rate. And so I usually refer to uh, being meticulous with bathroom cleansing habits. And then the other point is, is to really push your fluid intake a little bit. Because remember, with the mechanism of how these drugs work, they're really pushing a lot of glucose out of the kidney. When you do that, you're pushing a bunch of sodium and water out with it. So you do see sort of an osmotic diuresis effect. And that can um, be a little bit more um, pronounced in the elderly patients. So Overall, it hasn't shown a lot of hypotension type of, of side effects, but we do see it in either folks that have renal impairment or in the elderly. So if I have somebody who's a little bit elderly, what I would suggest is that they definitely increase their uh, fluid intake and watch this, especially that first month or so. This is really where we see a lot of those, those volume-related changes is the first 30 days, and so that would be what I'd really watch for, and, and again, being meticulous with cleansing habits. We do see UTIs, urinary tract infections as well. That's not as common as the mycotic infections, but they can occur. Um, sometimes these are severe, so it is something, again, to counsel patients to um, what, what the symptoms are of a UTI and, and to make sure that they're contacting their provider if, if they get those symptoms. Now, I know, Jen, that in 2016, the FDA wish, issued a, a warning about the risk of euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis associated with the SGLT2 inhibitors. And I'm just wondering how common is this problem? Who's most likely to develop it? Uh, what are some of, the, some, some of the signs and symptoms that we should tell patients about and certainly clinicians should be asking about? And, uh, you, know, you know, what do we, what should we expect or suspect when uh, someone might have developed euglycemic ketoacidosis? I mean, what should we be looking for? Sure. Um, so looking at the number of reported and published cases, as well as some retrospective analyses of the clinical trial programs of these three agents, it appears that the occurrence of DKA with this category of medications is fairly infrequent, and some places will report it as rare. But with that said, some case reports of DKA did result in ER visits or hospitalizations, so it's certainly something that we should be aware of and, and looking for. So a few specific things to note 
I think that first, DKA with SGLT2 inhibitors, like you mentioned, can present without significant hyperglycemia. So that's why we refer to it as euglycemic. It's definitely a different presentation than what we normally see with DKA. And this occurs because the SGLT2 inhibitor is still working to lower the glucose by increasing that urinary glucose excretion. Also, we see cases that have been reported both in patients with type 2 diabetes, but as well, we've seen it with type 1 patients as well. So looking at um, patients with type 1 that are maybe using it off-label. The occurrence is usually, it seems to be triggered by factors such as acute febrile illness or other things that would increase insulin requirements. It might also be triggered by reduced calorie intake or reduced insulin doses. So patients should definitely know common symptoms of DKA, like um, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, uh, tiredness. And they should know that the DKA in this setting can occur even if glucose levels are below 250. And if they see that symptoms like that are coming up, they should definitely contact their health care provider immediately. The provider can, you know, instruct the patient to stop taking the SGLT2 inhibitor. They should definitely be maintaining fluid intake. And then the clinicians can embark on additional strategies such as um, ketone testing or potential insulin management if that's needed. So the SGLT2 inhibitors appear to have a number of non-glycemic benefits, but I'm wondering what your take is on what the big unanswered questions are for this class of agents. Well, I'll tell you, I think there's a there's a number of them because these are really class that's been under a lot of scrutiny and a lot of attention um, because of the trials that have come out and, and some of the positive evidence and the uh, the dual benefits that they provide. I think one of the big unanswered questions is we just still don't have really long-term data on any of these drugs. And so, you know, 10-year, 20-year data, that's going to come with time. But uh, certainly right now they're, they're looking extremely promising and, and they're moving up in the recommendations as to when they should be added into diabetes therapy. Um, the cardiovascular safety, as Jen alluded to, is, is the question that is, is the most urgent for us to sort of answer and understand if it's a class effect or if it's, a, if it's tied to individual agents. These agents have different affinities for SGLT1 and SGLT2, and there's also another product that's uh, on its way, uh, sodagliflozin, that's a, a dual inhibitor that's almost, uh, it has almost a 50-50 type affinity. So understanding um, where that kind of clinically fits and whether, you know, having an affinity for SGLT2 versus one is, is a benefit or not is something I think we need to know. When Canvas comes out, hopefully this summer, we will know some cardiovascular safety for canagliflozin. The challenge with these big cardiovascular trials is each one has a slightly different population of patients. So even when we have data for all of the three agents currently available, you can't directly compare across the three trials because they are a little bit different in their, in their populations. But it will give us more feel for how cardiovascular beneficial um, these drugs could be. And then I think a big question continues to be the, the renal effects. I can remember when cannabigliflozin first came out that uh, there were a lot of folks that were really sort of up in arms at the American Diabetes Association uh, meeting because uh, why would you give a diabetes drug that's, that's working on an organ that, that is traditionally one of the organs that, that gets damaged? And are you using a mechanism through an organ that is 
something we worry about, and, and they really thought that these drugs might be harmful. That really hasn't panned out to be the case. In, in fact, there's, there's some early evidence that there are some renal protective data um, where these drugs might actually preserve the kidneys, and so that, that is very, very interesting, and I think we need to tease out more of what exactly is going on with, with the renal function with these patients over the long term, and are these things actually kidney sparing? Or can they be damaging? And what, what, is, what is that mechanism? And so I would say those are sort of the big questions right now that we're looking at. Well, great. Well, thanks to both of you for taking the time to share your expertise with us, and, and thanks for contributing to pharmacotherapy. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.